welcome to a new weekly podcast series called USERF Spotlight, hosted by the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, an independent federal advisory body. During each episode, Director of Outreach and Policy, Dwight Bashir, features a special guest to dive deeper on various topics and breaking developments that impact the universal right to freedom of religion or belief around the globe. Today, we're going to delve into recent developments in Russia, where religious freedom conditions have deteriorated drastically in recent years. Over the last year alone, USERF has published several products on Russia, including a report on the anti-cult movement and religious regulations in Russia, as well as a report on the global persecution of Jehovah's Witnesses, in which Russia was featured prominently. We also held a hearing in September 2020 on religious freedom conditions in Russia and Central Asia. Since 2017, USERF has recommended that Russia be designated a country of particular concern, or CPC, for its systematic, ongoing, and egregious violations. Yet the State Department has not yet designated Russia as a CPC. Today, in addition to surveying general conditions uh, over the past year or so, we'll also discuss developments unfolding right now including a series of new pieces of legislation put forward by the Duma with significant implications for religious freedom, and also discuss the ongoing widespread anti-corruption protests that represent the biggest challenge to government control in almost a decade. We're fortunate today to have with us USERF senior policy analyst, Jason Morton, who covers Russia and Central Asia for the commission to discuss these issues in more detail. Welcome, Jason. Thank you, Dwight. Before we learn more about the current protests and their implications, tell me, Jason, what are some of the most significant religious freedom issues in Russia today? So Yusuf is closely monitoring the condition of uh, Jehovah's Witnesses in Russia. In 2020, the Russian state brought about 188 criminal cases against Jehovah's Witnesses uh, who were banned outright as an extremist group in 2017. Since that time, there have been over uh, 1,274 raids and searches of members' homes, with uh, 477 of those occurring just in 2020. Uh, during the year 2020, 72 Jehovah's Witnesses were detained in some form, and this you know, includes anything from pre-trial detention to house arrest to outright incarceration in a labor camp or a prison. Um, and this number also includes six members from Russian-occupied Crimea. You mentioned Crimea. Uh, Tell us more about uh, Russia-occupied Crimea generally, and and what does the situation for religious freedom look like there, uh, particularly for Muslims in relation to other parts uh, of the country? Crimea is a region of Ukraine that was illegally occupied by Russia in 2014 as part of uh, broader unrest and and, and things that were going on there. Uh, Russia has relied heavily on the imposition of its restrictive religion laws to assert control over the Crimean population and as well as to repress opposition uh, to its presence. The Ukrainian Orthodox Church has been virtually eradicated from the peninsula since the 2014 invasion. Uh, In the spring of 2020, the Russian government actually began to transfer ownership of the main cathedral of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church uh, to the state. And this really represents kind of the effective erasure of that church in Crimea. 
Uh, Crimean Tatar Muslims face the greatest persecution. Uh, and this reflects really kind of the broader reality for Russian Muslims, even in Russia proper, uh, who are the most beleaguered religious group in the country. In 2020, at least 16 Crimean Tatar Muslims were sentenced to prison on trumped up charges of extremism and terrorism. And most of them were affiliated with secular opposition to the occupation of Crimea. Observers uh, to these uh, trials note that there is a clear lack of evidence supporting the terrorism charges that are brought against them. Uh, and there is evidence that confessions in many of these cases have been obtained through torture, which is of course not investigated by the Russian government. Uh, the general position of Russian Islam is complicated. On the one hand, Islam is considered one of the traditional religions of Russia, um, like Russian Orthodox Christianity. Um, and as such, it's given a more privileged status than many other religious minorities in Russia. But this traditional privilege kind of only applies to Muslims who practice in the state approved Hanafi uh, manner. Any Islamic practice that doesn't conform to this official standard is widely targeted as a potential extremist or even terrorist risk, and oftentimes, you know, without evidence of that. Uh, there's anywhere from 15 to 25 million Muslims in Russia. Many of them are migrant workers from Soviet Central Asia or from the Russian North Caucasus. Uh, and racism, Islamophobia, and persecution by law enforcement against them. I mean, they, they have, they're ethnically different than, than uh, you know, Russian, ethnically Russian Slavs. They're often targeted based on their, their appearance. And this kind of persecution is a major problem, particularly in the big cities where many of them um, are migrant laborers. There's an estimated 2 million Muslims in Moscow which makes it the largest Muslim population in Europe. Uh, but the city only has about six mosques and compare that to Paris, which is probably the most comparable uh, Muslim population in Europe. And then I think there's something like 18 mosques at least in Paris, so quite a large difference. And these are heavily monitored, these mosques by the police. And I, I would have been there on Friday services and it really gives you the impression that you are entering almost a war zone, but definitely a very unsafe space. Uh, in the North Caucasus, Islam is heavily securitized and it's been sort of a military occupation of that region for almost 20 years. Uh, for years, police across the North Caucasus have broadly targeted and harassed attendees at regional mosques, you know, kind of just blanketly harvesting their personal information if they go to services, subjecting them to questioning, that kind of thing. Um, since reopening in August, one mosque in Dagestan has been targeted so regularly that those massive raids are actually kind of casually referred to as part of the traditional Friday service. So it's really just a part of being Muslim in that part of the world, unfortunately. Uh, and in the North Caucasus Republic of Chechnya, morality is highly uh, prescripted and defined by the leader, Ramzan Kadyrov, who acts as almost a, a kind of quasi-religious figure himself. Chechens routinely are forced to appear in humiliating televised confessions where they have to publicly apologize for you know, a variety of offenses, including witchcraft, con consulting witches, insulting Islam, or, or in many cases, criticizing Kadyrov or, or the Chechen authorities. And this ritual is very reminiscent of customary political and religious practice in the region. Thanks for that detail. If we could go back for just a second, 
you could tell our listeners, you mentioned it you know, earlier on about Jehovah's Witnesses and the numbers uh, that are being tried. Can you give us just a quick flavor of what, why is that? Why are Jehovah's Witnesses so targeted? You gave a little uh, detail about uh, the, the Muslims in different part of the country. Why is it that they're being charged as extremists? It's a very complicated issue. And I mean, I could go on about it at length. I mean, on one level, this is a product of, of history. So in the Soviet Union, the Jehovah's Witnesses were targeted as an extremist group also. And this had a lot to do with the fact that they refuse in, you know, more than most religious groups to sort of participate and go along with the state. So they don't demonstrate the kind of acts of patriotism that are expected, uh, you know, especially in a place a highly patriotic or or kind of uh, oppressive place like the Soviet Union or, or Russia. Uh, so that's part of it. And Russia really never repudiated any of the propaganda that was delivered against Jehovah's Witnesses for decades uh, by the Soviet Union. And as part of Russia's larger sort of move against outside influences, it's kind of xenophobic trend labeling of many different religious minorities as extremists. The Jehovah's Witnesses... Um, really on some, you know, there's, there's that historical baggage, but also the fact that they don't actively participate in things like the military, um, you know, that, that, that is, it's easy for the government to target them as somehow a um, not real citizens or a threat because of their lack of patriotism, that kind of thing. Very helpful. Thanks for that background. Now, I mentioned at the top that uh, there's a spate of new legislation that uh, could have an impact uh, on religious freedom in the country. Can you tell us some of the most significant new laws that have been introduced by the Duma and, and where those could be headed? Yeah, so there's been, you know, at the end of 2020 in December, there was a whole kind of raft of, of legislation that was pushed through relatively quickly, including uh, one piece of legislation that was sort of accepted in its first reading in December uh, that would require all foreign educated clergy to be recertified within Russia. Uh, and it would prohibit anyone on the government's very expansive extremism and terrorism list from participating in or leading religious groups. So basically, they would not have the right to practice religion. Um, this is a real problem for many different reasons. But, uh, you know, most importantly, those included on this list, this extremism list, don't necessarily have to be convicted of a crime. You know, there, there may not be enough evidence to actually convict them of extremism or terrorism, but that doesn't mean that they get taken off the list. Just the fact that they were suspect um, is often enough to, to leave them on that list, which would mean depriving those people of their religious rights, as well as, you know, in many cases, freezing their assets or heavily restricting them. Um, you know, it would very dramatically expand the state's ability to target uh, religious individuals and groups that it has any problems with. Um, the law is scheduled for further review and discussion on February 24th, but even though it hasn't been passed yet, there's already been officials in at least one region who have begun demanding information about clergy from local religious groups, you know, wanting to see that they were certified, you know, by a Russian or in Russia, uh, by a Russian approved religious authority. And, you know, this law really is part of a broader xenophobic trend in recent Russian legislation. Uh, since passing its first so-called foreign agents law in 2012, Russia has steadily expanded the scope and punitive consequences of this law. And this foreign, these kinds of foreign agent laws have been picked up by many other countries. 
It's actually something that USERF will be reporting on soon. Uh, on December 2nd of 2020, President Vladimir Putin signed legislation that will allow anyone who distributes information online and receives any kind of foreign funding, as well as anyone who, any individual, so an individual blogger who distributes foreign media, these people can individually be labeled as foreign agents. Um, additional legislation, which was also approved by the Duma on December 23rd, will allow for more unscheduled inspections and reporting requirements, particularly related to participation in events organized by so-called undesirable foreign groups. We'll also ban in individuals designated as foreign agents from serving in the civil service, working in, in municipal government positions. So, you know, it's, it's definitely not something that you want to be labeled a foreign agent in Russia. Um, you know, although officially registered religious organizations have so far been exempt from these foreign agent laws, uh, many of the NGOs who have been targeted include groups like the Memorial Human Rights Center and the Sava Center for Information and Analysis. Uh, these are groups that support and provide lots of documentation about the persecution of religious minorities, government violations of religious freedom, and many of them have been targeted uh, kind of repeatedly under these foreign agent laws. So just to give you a picture of that, Memorial, which is also the oldest human rights organization in Russia, has been fined more than 20 times since being labeled a foreign agent in 2012. Now, what we've been seeing lately is news uh, of these anti-corruption protests going on since the return of political dissident, uh, dissident Alexei Navalny. Uh, so tell us here, is there any connection? Why are people angry? Is it literally because of his return and everything associated with that case? And are there any potential implications for religious freedom? And could he be, for example, a the kind of influence for broader human rights, including religious freedom, is he that kind of, uh, you know, dissident or, or is this a different uh, story? So on an immediate level, the protests were triggered by the, you know, both the poisoning uh, of Alexei Navalny in August 20th, 2020, when he was poisoned and then evacuated, uh, fortunately, to a German hospital. Um, and they're also you know, triggered by the arrest of Navalny upon returning to Russia. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, on January 17th, knowing full well that he would probably be arrested, which he was immediately. Um, he had already planned in advance uh, a documentary, which was released two days later, uh, called Putin's Palace, or Palace for Putin, uh, which documents the outrageous government corruption um, that you know that he uncovered, including this you know this billion dollar palace that Putin has been constructing for himself by the Black Sea, um, and he also called for these protests. So on January twenty third, about one hundred and ninety eight towns and cities across Russia Russia saw protests, uh, many of them drawing you know tens of thousands of people. Um, there was another protest on January thirty first where um, there were also severe police crackdowns, particularly in St. Petersburg and Moscow. Um, more than 10,000 people have been arrested so far um, at these protests. And while the, you know, these are very much a response to Navalny's call, uh, it's not necessarily just about Navalny. It's really sort of broad dissatisfaction with government corruption. Uh, and in terms of religious freedom and sort of broader hope for an improved situation in Russia that Navalny might uh, potentially 
indicate uh, it's a little bit more complicated, unfortunately. So there's no doubt that Navalny is a brave man. Um, at the moment, though, most Western coverage of him is kind of falling all over itself, trying to portray him as you know a heroic savior of Russian politics. You know, I've, I've even read things comparing him to Martin Luther King Jr. or Gandhi, and this is just not a valid comparison in in any way. Um, there's no doubt that his recent actions are legitimately heroic, but his political views, unfortunately, are far from ideal. You know, at least from a Western pluralistic and human rights oriented perspective. Uh, he also opposes the construction of more mosques in Moscow, uh, saying that this is a concession to, you know, the takeover of a Russian culture by a foreign element. Um, he launched, you know, his political campaigns include one called Stop Feeding the Caucasus. That kind of blanketly demonizes the entire area and calls for the, you know, end of federal funding to the region. Uh, he said he wouldn't return Crimea to Ukraine if he were to become president. He insists that Russians and Ukrainians are really the same and that Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine should all just be Russia. Uh, there is some hope that the fact that he does have so much credit in the Western community that he would be more receptive to some of these kinds of human rights reforms, but you know he would really have to prove himself and sort of renounce his previous legacy, which he has yet to do. So with this negative trajectory, um, what would you say are some of the best options in terms of U.S. policy to counter uh, Russia's egregious violations of religious freedom and, and the road they've been traveling these past few years? What, what would that CPC designation that I mentioned at the top mean as far as accountability or some way to uh, address uh, the Russian government's uh, activities that have just been going down uh, a terrible slope for, for years now? Well, for starters, it's really critical that the State Department takes up our recommendation that Russia be uh, a designated a country of particular concern, CPC, because um, this would allow the United States to levy sanctions that are specifically related to religious freedom violations. You know, without these kinds of concrete punitive consequences, there's really not a disincentive for Russia to change its course. Um, but it is important that that these sanctions, if leveled, would be smart and flexible. So a lot of there's been a lot of talk about you know the the extent to which Russia is able to adapt itself to sanctions, particularly when those sanctions are perceived to be permanent. They're just going to make structural adjustments, and they they've proven that they can do that. Um, if sanctions are, you know, if IRFA sanctions are levied against particular economic sectors, for instance, there should be a clear pathway to have them lifted. So not, not that this would just be a new permanent reality, but, you know, kind of write it into the law that, you know, once you stop persecuting Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, sanction A, B, or C will be lifted or something along those lines. I think it's also important for the U.S. government to coordinate with European allies on this. Uh, especially in the case of individual sanctions, freezing European assets or visas would definitely have much more of a, an immediate impact than barring a Russian official's entry to the United States, for instance. Um, and ideally, you know, all of these measures, all of these punitive measures would incentivize some kind of bilateral engagement on this issue, uh, similar to, to things that we've seen recently uh, with Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan. 
you know, sanctions really ultimately are a very crude tool and diplomacy is, is definitely the preferred option. So unfortunately, given the dismal state of U.S.-Russia relations, this, this is a heavy lift right now. Uh, but, you know, Russia is definitely not going to be dictated to on this issue. And there's, you know, a decent amount of legitimate mistrust on both sides of the, of the equation. Um, but really, this kind of diplomatic engagement is, is very sorely needed and not just for religious freedom. So religious re freedom reform in Russia really needs to be part of a larger diplomatic conversation between the two countries. And from our, you know, in, in our sort of lane, you know, what we need to be doing is helping to incentivize that larger conversation that would allow for a diplomatic solution to many of these things. And I think that highlighting uh, religious freedom abuses, standing up for persecuted peoples in Russia is, is one way of, of doing that. And we'll have to leave it right there. I want to thank uh, USERF uh, Senior Policy Analyst Jason Morton for his insights today. As always, you can find our work uh, and specifically on Russia and our latest policy recommendations that were discussed here uh, at our, on our website at www.usurf.gov. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time on USERF Spotlight. To learn more about USERF, and about global religious freedom concerns, visit usurf.gov. That's U-S-C-I-R-F dot gov. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at U-S-C-I-R-F. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for another Usurf Spotlight.